Today's episode of Socially Democratic is proudly presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. Dunn Street trains engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building. And Dunn Street helps leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. And if you want to act together and create change in your community in 2023, then hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about extending access to justice? Morris Blackburn has an excellent opportunity for a union partnership manager to join the firm on a 12-month contract based here in Melbourne uh, in the CBD office. This is a high-profile opportunity where you can bring passion and enthusiasm to a role that will see you drive and promote the Morris Blackburn ethos to help reach more clients in need. To find out more about the role, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, phone banks that change people's minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and a text blast that distills your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, just go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to... Another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And today we're having a bit of a policy conversation and an advocacy conversation. We're going to be talking to uh, Abigail Lewis, who is the Senior Policy and Advocacy Advisor for VACRO, which is uh, one of Victoria's oldest community organisations and it's the state's only specialist criminal justice reintegration service. And we're going to be talking to Abigail today about uh, some of the challenges that they find with our existing uh, criminal justice system and the solutions to address some of the challenges and how it impacts not just people in the, in the system but the wider community as well. So look forward to that conversation with Abigail today. Uh, if you like the show, don't forget to give us five stars on Apple Podcast. And when you're done listening to the episode, leave us a review. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. We are now doing these, I should have said this last week, we're now doing these episodes on YouTube uh, and they're audio visual. It's AV. We're really in the 21st century here now. Um, so you get to see uh, my ugly mug and the faces of the people that we are interviewing each week. Um, so follow us on, uh, on YouTube as well. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Tuesday on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. I had to check then. It fell, feel, today feels like a Wednesday, but it clearly is not. It is a Tuesday. Uh, and uh, joining me on the line is uh, Abigail Lewis, who is a Senior Policy and Advocacy Advisor for VACRO, which is one of Victoria's oldest community organisations and the state's only specialist criminal justice reintegration service. And she's on the show today to talk about the Victorian justice system and reintegration for our citizens. It's great to have her on the show today. Abigail, welcome to Socially Democratic. 
Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, it's a topic that I must admit, I'll put my hand up straight away and say I know very little about. I do wonder um, certainly how much our listeners mm. know about, um, and I'm really keen to sort of deep dive into this uh, this topic with you today. But before we do that, uh, I'm keen to know a little bit more about yourself. How did you come to be working in this particular field in, uh, in uh, criminal justice reintegration? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is actually originally in journalism um, and I sort of made my way from that into communications and then policy comms and then policy advocacy. And then now I'm also getting my PhD in a policy field. And throughout that entire journey, so whether I was reporting on city homelessness policy or developing a comm strategy for employment services reform or advocating on social security and researching social housing, this common thread that I kept sort of returning to was the gap in all these service systems when it comes to people who are caught up in the justice system. Um, and I'm a political person, like I've always been um, involved in, in progressive politics. And so I was reading and learning more at the same time about the serious flaws in the way that we understand and respond to criminalized behaviors in, in our society. And the fact that, you know, when someone is incarcerated by the state, we essentially remove them from society. They lose all their rights. They all lose all their access to support um, exactly when they need that support most, which is sort of the great tragedy of it. Um, we just warehouse them. You know, we treat them um, cruelly and inhumanely and we absolutely fail them in every regard. And in doing so, you know, we fail our communities um, and our society at large as well. So to me, it became the number one issue in our society, you know, because it, it represents the baseline of, of how we treat each other and how we treat the people in our society who need the most support. So I was really keen to move into um, policy advocacy in the justice space and really excited to work for an organisation like VACRO, which is really trying to help those people who, who, who do find themselves caught up in the justice system. Was there a moment um, during your uh, journalism career uh, or moments in uh, doing that work that you saw uh, examples of folks in the in the justice system that started to lead you down this path of of interest and wanting to explore this more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can remember it really clearly because it was my first front page byline. So I worked for like a local daily newspaper, a city newspaper. And um, while I was working there, the city um, criminalized beg street begging. So in within certain areas. So it was a local council, you know, policy um, that gave the police move on powers to move on anyone who was homeless, sleeping rough, and specifically begging within a within a certain community. And um, that sort of struck me instinctively as as deeply unfair and exclusionary but it also in researching that story made me think about the ways in which often our default knee-jerk response to poverty to hardship to um, exclusion is criminalization and how um, I think anyone even logically would be able to make the connection that that just doesn't work it can't work um, and I realised how often we as a society do respond to hardship with criminalisation and that sort of, yeah, initiated that 
journey for me to becoming more and more interested in um, crime and, and how we as a society criminalize certain certain acts and certain behaviors and certain people. So, yeah. So tell us a, a bit about um, about the organisation that you you work for. Um, it's obviously one of the oldest in the in the in the states. It's been around for quite some time. Yeah, I've never heard of it before, and I wonder yeah. if I as well. But uh, you know, give us a bit of a background on the on the organisation. Yeah. So as you introduced us, um, VACRO is Victoria's only specialist criminal justice reintegration service. And as you referred to there, we're 150 years old. We've been doing this work since 1872. So we really have strong organisational expertise in this space of, you know, reintegrating into, into society after interaction with the justice system. So what that means is that we support people who are or have been incarcerated and their families to create new beginnings for themselves and thrive in their communities after their release. And we do that in a number of ways. So we run reintegration programs inside the prisons themselves. So those could be group sessions or one-on-one sessions to help people who have high reintegration needs to get ready to build the life that they want when they come out of prison. Um, and that can be, you know, um, really simple administrative work, like making sure someone is hooked up to Centrelink after their release. That is a surprisingly significant administrative barrier to many people coming out of prison. And that's just one thing. What, but it can also, why is that? Um, because if there's no one in prison to help you do, like, how would you do it from inside a prison? You know, you've got no internet, you've got no ID card, you've got no bank details. All of these things are taken away from you when you enter the prison system. And there's no way for an individual by themselves inside the prison system to get hooked back up into the systems that drive society without support. So some people have support from their families or from their partners. Um, some people have very, very little support. And so that's where, you know, a service like ours and, and our um, reintegration coordinators could help an individual do things like that. Um, we also run a post-release reintegration service. So that often involves meeting someone at the gate on the day of their release um, and walking alongside them to, you know, find housing, connect with other services, build relationships in their families and their communities and so on. And then we also do specialized family work and specialized employment work. So we know, for example, that strong familial relationships are one of the strongest protective factors against returning to a criminalized lifestyle. So we work with families who have an incarcerated family member offering, you know, family counseling, supported family visits. And then in the employment space, our participants really struggle against stigma in the job market to find stable employment after their release. So we developed and launched last year our program Second Chance Jobs, which works with participants pre-release to understand their employment needs and then matches them with an employer and um, supports both employer and employee for a year post-release to make sure that both parties have the support they need to make that arrangement really secure and ongoing. Um, and then our newest program, which is really exciting, we're currently developing it in um, partnership with the Victorian government, is a program called ARC that's going to deliver two years of post-release sort of intensively supported housing. And this is really, really essential because more than half of people leaving prison in Australia expect to be homeless when they're released. 
And um, for us, our Reconnect program participants, that's our post-release program, more than 80% of, of our participants are homeless on their release. Um, so that housing component is really crucial. Um, both Second Chance Jobs and ARC are really pioneering programs. Like there's never been post-release employment or housing support at this level before in Victoria, which is shocking when you think about how obvious it is that mm. those two things would be really important things that people would need coming out of prison. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited about them. We're really keen to get going and scale those programs up so that more and more people can access that support. Uh, what are some of the key issues that Victorians face when it comes to interacting with uh, the justice system, um, understanding yeah. that, you know, it doesn't simply affect people who are becoming incarcerated, but also the people around them as well. Just talk us through some of those experiences. Yeah. Okay. So this is a big question. I only um, ask the big questions, Abigail. <laughs> and I think I sort of have to start with a big answer, which is that really the whole justice system, like all the norms and premises that underlie what we understand the justice system to rest on, is a huge issue for all Victorians. I mean, just this week, the coroner handed down the findings from his inquest into the death of Veronica Nelson in the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, which is the main women's prison in Victoria. And he found that her death was A, preventable, but B, caused by problems at every single level of the justice system. So every interaction that she had with every um, level in our justice system contributed to her death. So the way we police is really dangerous and really harmful. The court system is dangerous and harmful. The prison system is extraordinarily dangerous and harmful to all of us because prison makes people more traumatised, more criminalised, more of a threat to themselves and to others. And then the stigma that is attached to people coming out of prison and not just social stigma but sort of formal legal and administrative stigma is also dangerous and harmful um, to their prospects reintegrating into society. So people often ask, you know, like, what's not working in the justice system? Why doesn't a tough on crime approach work? Why doesn't prison work? And the answer is that the justice system is working um, exactly as intended to do the only thing it was ever designed to do, which is detain and warehouse people that we as a society have decided that we don't want to look after and support anymore. And Now, thankfully, I think we're starting to look at this a little bit differently. Like, I think that thanks to some really tireless activism and advocacy in this space, particularly from Black, Indigenous and other criminalised populations around the world and here in Australia, we're all starting to realise that the justice system is dangerous and harmful. Um, But the question is not, you know, how can we fix a broken system? It's how can we build a new system with different intentions? I'm just thinking as you say that, how that would play out on the front page of like the Herald Sun who, you know, the conservative side of Australian politics really, you know, run this kind of tough on crime kind of narrative and here you are doing all this critical work to try and get us to rethink about this. Um, How is, is that something that you have to factor in in the work that you do or is it we just completely ignore that and just f- stay focused on the goals of what, what we want to achieve, which is to reform the, the justice system in this state? Yeah, absolutely. We have to factor it in. The tough on crime narrative is um, dominant, you know, globally, not just in Victoria, not just in Australia. Um, I think there are elements of our context here in Victoria that 
that are particularly sort of supportive of that narrative. So some parts of our, you know, our media establishment, as you mentioned, the Herald Sun and and the way that we sort of sensationalise crime in the media here, but also the fact that, you know, particularly in Victoria, the part that the main political parties have sort of fought, you know, numerous successive elections, thankfully not the last one, but until the most recent one, um, trying to wedge each other further and further in terms of being tough on crime and that is really, um, really damaging because um, crime and people who are drawn into criminalised lifestyles are not a pawn that should be kind of used politically in that way. But also because it means that people, you know, regular people who live in Victoria are sold this lie over and over again that a tough on crime approach works, that prisons keep them safer, that prisons make their communities stronger. And that's just fundamentally not true. Um, prisons are afflictive. Prisons make people more dangerous. And um, actually, you know, what I find personally and what we find at VACRO is that when you have um, ordinary conversations with people that you know, people that you love, even conservative people, people are actually very open to hearing about alternatives to prison and they're very um, interested to hear about the flaws in the current system and they're shocked when you explain to them you know when we incarcerate people in Australia we strip them of their Medicare access when you explain to them um, the way force and restraint are used in our prison system here when you explain to them how much a phone call costs from inside the prison system and that there's an American private security company that profits off that phone call being made you know these are things that people in Victoria um, don't necessarily know. So, um, yeah, the predominant narrative of tough on crime is, of course, a factor. But actually, when you have real human conversations with people, what we find is that it's not that difficult a narrative to um, to overcome or to bypass if, if we really put effort into it. So you started to talk about some of the alternatives in mm. uh, rebuilding, I think is the word you used, our justice system. And you're obviously yeah. flagged in three areas, correct me if I'm wrong. You talked about policing, you talked about the courts, and then you talked about the prison system yourself. Mm. Have I missed any? Was there any others? It was just the three, right? Uh, um, look, I mean, it's all of those kind of mini systems are part of a much bigger system that are, that is dictated by a set of principles and norms. Um, so yeah, it's really the whole system. Yeah. So where do you start in terms of this journey of of creating these alternative uh, solutions or scenarios for for the justice system? Yeah, what, yeah, what definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are alternatives um, at Vacro. Obviously, our expertise is in the prison system. So what we're calling for in our advocacy is a government a government commitment to start to move away from using prison as a response to crime for all of the reasons that I've mentioned already and there are already existing working alternatives in Victoria that we can scale up like our diversion courts and our small restorative justice programs so a diversion court is a court where people who are charged with a criminal offence can be diverted from the criminal justice system and instead have their matter considered in a way that maximises their prospects of um, rehabilitation and desistance by avoiding a finding of guilt and a creation of a criminal record. So a diversion court instead allows the opportunity to like participate in programmes, to provide reparation to any victims that's involved or to otherwise contribute to a community. 
Um, so examples in Victoria include the Koori Court, where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have pled guilty to a criminal offence. Um, instead of, you know, going to court and going through the justice system, they sort of take part with a take part in a like a conference, a conversation with the magistrate, with Aboriginal elders, um, with others. And then we also have in Victoria the Assessment and Referral Court, which is um, a similar setup, but but for people who um, have mental illnesses or are dealing with cognitive impairment. And again, it's this kind of um, conferencing opportunity, like a process with magistrates, with case managers, with um, with any victims that are involved to develop like an individual support program and reparations program rather than going to jail. Um, and it's well established that diversion and problem solving courts encourage desistance from crime. So by desistance from crime, I mean someone's journey away from using criminalized behaviors in like a problematic or dangerous way. So we already have um, small examples of diversion courts here in Victoria. We know that they work, their outcomes are, their reported outcomes are really good, really high. So we need to be scaling those up as a first step. Um, just, we also, Abigail, just picking up yeah. on that part there, that re, re, talk to me a bit about those reported outcomes. What are, what are the positive outcomes that you guys are looking for in terms of uh, coming out of this diversion justice system? Diversion yeah, justice sure. System. So the most recent sort of um, like big formal evaluation um, was quite a while ago now. Um, I, I don't know the year off the top of my head, but um, it certainly wasn't sort of within the last 10 years, but there was a big evaluation done of the court diversion program and that found that 94% of diversions were successfully completed. That means that 94% of people that went through the diversion court, you know, did all the things that they were required to do. And also that the reoffending rate of people that went through diversion was, was very low. So, um, from the, I think about seven, only 7% of the people that went through the diversion program were convicted of a subsequent offence in the next 12 months. So that's compared to a broader statewide recidivism rate, which I think you're testing me on the numbers now, but it's, I think it's 37% this year. Um, recidivism in Victoria is measured slightly differently. So it's um, the rate of return to prison within two years of being released. And that rate this year, I think, was 37%. But as a comparator, only 7% of the people that went through the diversion court reoffended within 12 months. So the measurement is slightly different, but it's pretty clear, not just from that evaluation, but from all of the, you know, the, the research into diversion and the literature that's been published globally, that um, diversion is more successful as a step on someone's journey to desist from crime than incarceration would be. That's interesting. Now, I interrupted you on your train of thought about some of the other alternatives. Continue with what you're going to say. Yeah. Um, so another alternative that we already have in Victoria at a small scale is something called restorative justice. So restorative justice is, I guess, a theory of justice that differs from the theories of justice that inform our current criminal justice system. So our current system in Australia is premised on retributive justice, i.e. that you know, the proper response to crime is is retribution, is punishment. And um, proponents of restributive justice, so you're sort of tough on crime folk, their argument is that punishments work because they deter the individual from committing the crime again. 
um, and also that they deter other people who aren't offending from offending in the first place and that broader society sees that people who commit crimes repay their debts to society. So that's retributive justice. And restorative justice is different because it focuses not on crime as a wrongdoing that's committed against the state, like in violation of the law, but as a wrongdoing that causes harm to individuals and their communities. And so its focus is on repairing that harm and preventing further harm from being caused rather than determining guilt and imposing punishment. So restorative justice practices usually include, again, mediation, conferences between people who have been harmed by a crime and the people who caused the harm. But the overall goal is like communal healing rather than retribution. So again, there's a really strong established evidence base for the effectiveness of restorative justice, both in terms of victims of crime agreeing that, you know, it presented them with a good outcome and also in preventing future crime. And so in Victoria, we have seen some success in introducing restorative justice practices. And one really big example is the statewide youth justice group conferencing program. So that's run by non-government agencies in Victoria, but um, young people who are caught up in the youth justice system can be referred to youth justice group conferencing instead of having to go through the youth justice system. And that's been evaluated as reducing the individual likelihood of reoffending by approximately 40%. Um, we also have a family violence restorative justice service in Victoria, although it's small, and um, the Centre for Innovative Justice at RMIT runs a restorative justice service called Open Circle. Again, it's small. So we have these you know, small, hopeful examples of restorative justice practices in Victoria, but we really need to be... Um, scaling scaling those up so that we can start to move away from a reliance on carceral systems as a response to crime. Thinking about uh, the, the families or the people who are victims of crime uh, and trying to also acknowledge their experience mm. in this, um, and I'm thinking about uh, criminal offences that are, you know, of, of violent nature, yeah. Um, where, you know, naturally you could imagine, uh, you know, a family who've lost a loved one through mm. through crime, you know, that they want justice. Well, certainly in all the Hollywood movies you get a sense that they want justice. Yeah. Uh, how, how, do you, um, how do you balance that whilst trying to obviously achieve outcomes for people who are entering into the justice system? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just that's a tricky balance, right? Yeah, I think one of the most tragic sort of myths that is perpetuated about this is that there's a clear boundary between people who are victims of crime and people who commit crime. And the truth is that the Venn diagram is almost a circle, you know. I think it's something like 90% of the women who are incarcerated in Victoria currently have been victims of crime themselves. Those are largely violent crimes, largely family violence crimes. So... It's really important to remember that a lot of people who are victims of crime are then criminalised themselves and vice versa. And it's kind of this ongoing cycle. And the way to help victims of crime is to interrupt that cycle and offer support to ensure that the cycle doesn't continue. Um, so that's that's one thing that's important to to remember in terms of the, the victims of crime, committers of crime myth binary. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is that um, 
victims of crime themselves find the criminal justice system incredibly traumatizing. Anyone who has been um, the victim of a violent crime who has had to testify to that experience in court has, you know, many people find the court process incredibly dehumanizing, incredibly traumatizing or re-traumatizing. And what they report in the, the information that we have about something like a restorative justice process is that a process like that is much more respectful of them and their needs and the available evidence that we have is that victims of crime um, are happier with the outcomes that come from those kinds of alternative justice processes than they are with, um, you know, a traditional criminal justice system response. I think you're right that, you know, the movies and the media lead us to expect that victims of crime want revenge. But what what we find and what the evidence shows is that um, what victims of crime wants, uh, what victims of crime want above all, is a reassurance that what happened to them will not happen to someone else, and they're sold a lie that prison is the answer to that, but it's not. And um, the the truth is that when families, for example, go through restorative justice processes, they feel much more reassured that the person that they've interacted with is on a pathway to desistance from crime than they would simply by that person being incarcerated in the prison system. Do you find yourself watching shows like CSI and NYPD Blue and get really frustrated with the way that they're handling it from a public policy perspective? Um, I don't watch CSI or <laughs> NYPD Blue. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I watch a lot of true crime and I listen to a lot of true crime and yes, yeah, certainly. But I think once you start to like really understand the system for what it is and, and what it's trying to do, like all of that stuff falls into place and makes sense. And um, yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Um, let's uh, talk about how we, uh, you mentioned before about reintegration. What are some of the key strategies uh, that we want to look at to implement uh, to help folks reintegrate back into uh, the community? Yeah, absolutely. So the authoritative body of work when it comes to reintegrating and thriving in our communities post-release is called desistance theory. So that's what I've been referring to when I've been talking about desistance from crime. And desistance theory, like I describe it as authoritative, it's a really significant body of academic research and practice evidence as to how and why people desist or journey away from using crime in a problematic way. Um, The reason I'm phrasing it like that is because um, almost everyone commits crimes, like almost all of your listeners will be able to think back to a time when they have broken the law in some minor or major fashion, right? Everyone is committing crimes. Not everybody is criminalized, though. And not everyone is using crime in, in a way that's harmful or dangerous or, or problematic to themselves or others. But some people are. And so desistance is that journey away from using crime in that problematic way and towards 
like I guess a more ordinary social and economic inclusion in their communities. So based on that literature, we actually know exactly what people need to move away from crime. And it falls into four categories. So the first category is new self-labels and narratives. So psychologically, we all kind of conform to the roles that we believe society has assigned for us, you know, whether that's our occupations or whether that's our role as a parent or whether that's our role as a community member. And if society has told you over and over again that you're an offender, you're a criminal, you're a prisoner, um, you sort of tend to conform to that role. You have that belief about yourself. And so that's a really significant um, change that needs to occur in order for someone to desist from crime is having a, a, a new label for themselves, a new narrative for themselves that positions themselves somewhere different. So that could be um, a label as an employee. You know, someone comes out of prison and gets a job and that really transforms their, their self-image and their, their narrative about who they are and what they do day to day. It could be a narrative about themselves as, you know, a really good dad or um, a really good friend or a community member. So that's the first thing is have developing that new self-label and new narrative for yourself. And that's why, you know, labels like offender, prisoner, criminal are so, you know, so damaging. Like it's not just kind of people being picky about language. Like the evidence really does show that labeling people who use crime in that way over and over again in society as we do really harms their progress towards desistance. So that's number one. Um, number two is... Abigail, can I pick you up on yeah. that? Uh, yeah. So just practically, what does that look like? I am fascinated by this. Obviously, my background is in community organising. We talk about public yeah. and trying to motivate people to take action and whatnot. So, I mean, what, what does this look practically look like? I mean, a prisoner walks out of prison and says, right, I've got a new narrative right now and I want to tell you all about it. Or how does this, you know, what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, that, that, that rarely happens. What's required is like pretty intensive support of the kind that's not available in the prison system, which is why we see this so often not happening. Um, but we could be using someone's time in prison to help them develop psychologically that new narrative about themselves. Um, but one of the ways that it can be done is by... Um, you know, by securing a job post-release, for example. So a participant going through our Second Chance Jobs program, um, you know, one of the big goals of that program is that when someone comes out of prison, they're in this sort of new identity, this new narrative of themselves as a productive and respected employee. Another really big thing is strengthening family relationships. So um, one of the really tragic things that we do when we put people in prison is remove them from their families and often that removal is um, never healed from, you know, never, never really reversed. And so this opportunity for someone to come out of prison and take on this like pro-social identity as a parent is often removed from them when that could be like the strongest new self-label that someone could come out of prison to. So there are a lot of different ways to support people in developing new narratives about themselves, psychological support, therapeutic support, family support, employment support. Um, unfortunately, the current system doesn't provide that mm. at the moment, um, other than in small doses. Um, but yeah, so the second category is relationships. So I touched on that before, family and friend relationships. Um, 
having a good, you know, having a strong and stable family around you is an incredibly successful protective factor against returning to crime. Um, It's one of the reasons why we really focus on strengthening family bonds in our practice. Um, And it's one of the reasons why we're calling on the Victorian government to formally recognise and support the children and families of people who are incarcerated, because currently there is no government body or agency that has a mandate or responsibility for that cohort. So if you're a a family and one of your family members is incarcerated, there's essentially nowhere you can go. Like there's no supports dedicated to you. Um, So we're working to change that. The third thing that people need to move away from crime is access to resources. So housing, employment, uh, or or payment of, you know, social security benefits, food, water, all of those, you know, basic things that we all need to live a good and healthy life. And then the final thing is community participation. So that is for um, someone who is released from from prison to feel really strongly that they're a valued member of their community. Um, this is a really difficult one to achieve because of the stigma um, that people do face when they're released from prison. Um, and, and when I say stigma, I don't just mean like the social stigma from your peers or, or your community, because actually people themselves are quite sort of... Um, forgiving and willing to give people a second chance. You know, people do believe in second chances, but there is a significant amount of legal and an administrative stigma that gets placed on people coming out of prison. So, for example, um, there is no protection against discrimination on the basis of a criminal record. So it's perfectly legal for a property manager or a landlord to refuse you housing on the basis of a criminal record. It's perfectly legal for an employer to not employ you on the basis of a criminal record, even if um, your criminal record, you know, has absolutely no bearing on um, your viability as a tenant or your success in that particular role. You know, it's not a protected characteristic. So um, that stigma, that discrimination is, is perfectly legal and facilitated. So those are the four kind of categories of things that people need to move away from crime. But it's really important to note with regard to desistance, that it's not a linear journey. Like all behaviour change, desistance involves setbacks. Um, I talked earlier a little bit about the recidivism rate. And in Victoria, we're really focused on measuring the recidivism rate as an outcome of our justice system. So that's the percentage of people who are released from prison who return within two years. Um, And when the recidivism rate is high, you know, we consider that a really big problem and a failure. But our view is that, you know, people who relapse aren't failures and neither are people who reoffend. And if we treat reoffending as a setback on a longer desistance journey and an opportunity for more support instead of writing people off at that point, you know, we will see better outcomes for for all of our communities. Where does uh, Victoria, and maybe if you want to comment more broadly, uh, uh, the Australian justice system, I know we have a state-based system, but where does where do we stack up with the rest of the world um, in terms of the way that we treat our um, citizens that are going through the, the justice system? And the second question is, uh, you know, some of these ideas that you've um, floated on the show today uh, mm. sound fantastic. Uh, where have they been developed? Like is it, do you have examples of this overseas that you look towards that you wanted to implement in Australia or is it something that's come out of 
um, the experiences here in Australia in, in itself anyway. Yeah, sure. Um, so how do we stack up um, badly would be my sort of um, initial response. Great. Um, we incarcerate children as young as 10 years old in Australia. That breaches international law. We continue to incarcerate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples at a rate that makes them the most incarcerated population on this earth. That's a great national shame. Mm. Um, Your listeners will know about our dismal record on deaths in custody. In our prison system, we use excessive force and restraint, including chemical restraint and other tools that constitute torture, such as spit hoods. We know that we use spit hoods on children in the Australian prison system. What are they? Um, a spit hood is a mesh hood that is attached over someone's head and neck, um, ostensibly to stop them spitting at, um, at you know, prison officers, but in reality is a form of restraint that's used as punishment. Many people will have seen the harrowing images out of Dondale of um, a 14-year-old child um, who was kept in a spit hood for, for hours. Um, those are some of the really horrific images that um, that have come out of Dondale in the Northern Territory, but the Australian prison system in general. Um, spit hoods constitute torture, um, and we, we, we do use them in Australia. Um, we routinely strip search and use solitary confinement in the Victorian prison system, again, in breach of, of international law. Um, we're breaching international law so much that we've now missed multiple deadlines to meet our obligation under the UN's optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture, which we signed in, in 2017 and still haven't, right, still haven't met our obligations. And when the UN came to Australia last year to inspect our places of detention, we literally wouldn't let them in to inspect. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're not doing well in terms of our, our sort of international um, in terms of our international obligations, it's hard to make sort of direct comparisons between prison systems, you know, in different countries. Like, I'm not sure that's necessarily a useful exercise either, because um, prison systems are, you know, so so different and differently implemented in so many different jurisdictions. But if we measure ourselves against, you know, what international law is and what our international obligations are. Um, you know, we're, we're like under warning with the UN, like it's, it's bad. (laughs) Um, in terms of other countries that are doing well, or I guess places that we might look to, to reform for reform, again, it's difficult because, um, I sort of struggle with, wholesale recommending the importation of systems from other countries into Australia because um, Australia is a unique state with its own um, sort of quirks and we should be developing um, solutions and policies and systems that are, you know, uniquely suited for our population. So I certainly wouldn't say, you know, that there's one prison system somewhere else that we should be looking to emulate um, however, there are a good examples of policy and practice that, um, you know, I, I certainly think we should be trialing here. Um, there are some examples in the United Kingdom um, 
There are some examples in some states of the United States. The US as a whole is obviously not a model for carceral policy, but there are some jurisdictions in the United States that are more progressive than Victoria. So one example would be the state of Connecticut just made phone calls, just funded all phone calls within their prison system. In Victoria, a 12-minute phone call costs $7.95, which is more than a day's wage in the Victorian prison system and an American company profits off of that. So, you know, there are jurisdictions in in the states that we should look to for reform. Um, People often mention places like the Scandinavian countries. So Norway is um, really held up as an exemplar for how to run a prison system that is... um, I suppose, as small and as rehabilitative as a prison system can be. I don't personally think any carceral system will ever be able to really provide the kind of therapeutic um, support that's that's really needed to help people desist from crime. But Norway is certainly, you know, the, the best practice that, that currently exists um, in the world. But, you know, the Norwegian model can't necessarily be imported directly here because Norway's context, population, geography, etc. is is completely different from what we have here. But even within Australia, we can look to other jurisdictions for better examples. You know, the ACT, um, I would say, is doing better than Victoria. Um, I think the ACT and New South Wales both have both allow um, online learning in their prison system, which we do not allow in Victoria. So there's no sort of access, you know, secure monitored access to the Internet really at all for the purposes of of training and education, um, which which I think is, is a massively wasted opportunity. And there are those opportunities in other states. A really big one that Victoria Um, It's just Victoria and Western Australia, actually. So um, international law, again, dictates that the healthcare of people who are incarcerated should be equivalent to the healthcare that's provided in the community. That means that um, the Department of Health should provide healthcare services in prison and prison healthcare services should be accountable to the health ministry. In all other Australian states and territories except us and WA, it is. In Victoria, um, the justice healthcare is situated within the de- within Corrections Victoria and within the Department of Justice. There's no accountability to or oversight from any kind of health ministry. Um, Corrections Victoria subcontracts, um, again, American security companies like G4S and the GEO Group to run healthcare services in prisons. Um, this has really devastating com- consequences, as we've seen from the inquest into the passing of Veronica Nelson um, just this week. So, um, yeah, that was a long-winded way to say there are a lot of places we can look for better justice policy than what we have currently. If I can pick up on two uh, points that you made there towards the end, which I'm interested in, mm. uh, the first one being about the healthcare. What yeah. is the what is the thinking behind that from government to place the health care of prisoners in the Corrections Victoria part mm. of government? Um, I wish I knew. Right. <laughs> I wish I had the answer to that question. Um, 
My understanding is that it once was publicly, you know, provided and um, and um, provided by the Department of Health, but at some point that was privatised, that was taken in-house. The broader context, I think, is the classic Australian policy dilemma of state versus federal responsibility. So um, even though, so healthcare, I guess, generally is a federal issue in Australia. So obviously we have the Medicare system and the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, and that's all um, administered federally. But justice policy has devolved to the states and territories. So the argument from the feds is that healthcare delivered to people in prisons should be the responsibility of states and territories, and that if Medicare access is allowed, that would be what they call double dipping. Um, So people who are incarcerated don't have any Medicare access at all, and the state and territories, states and territories have to um, make decisions on how they provide for and fund that healthcare. I guess at some point in... um, in Victoria's history, the decision was made to sort of bring that fully in-house, bring that into the corrections budget rather than the health budget and um, cater for that by outsourcing, you know, outsourcing that to private corporations. Um, there are a number of different companies that provide healthcare services in Victoria's prisons. We were really pleased to hear just a couple of weeks ago, the new Minister for Corrections announced that healthcare in the women's prisons is going to be removed from correct care, which has just been referred to the Department of Public Prosecutions by the coroner and replaced by the Department of Health. So that's a really big step forward that we're really excited to see. Unfortunately, at the same time, the government in the men's prison system has taken that contract away and given it to GEO Group, which is um, an American security company. So it's a little bit of inconsistent logic, you know, that that um, that the Department of Health is taking over in the women's prisons, and we're we're getting more privatized healthcare in the men's prisons. But what we're really hoping to see is improvement in healthcare, improvement in oversight and accountability in the women's space. Um, that that will then mean maybe we can we can transition more towards that in the men's prison system as well. The second question I was going to ask you was the uh, in respect to the remarks you made on education, learning and development mm. in the prison system. I, I just, if prison was meant to be an opportunity for rehabilitation, as I guess the line would have been said, mm. uh, surely education, learning, development is a way of rehabilitating oneself. Um, yet you're telling me that that isn't afforded to our citizens that are incarcerated, uh, certainly here in Victoria. Uh, why not? Um, and what can we do about that to make that change? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, there is vocational education and training available in the prison system. Um, So um, I think it's about a third of eligible people incarcerated in Victoria are participating in education and training. Um, And um, but that happens as in-person courses. So um, We actually don't know because data is not made available on sort of specific courses, course participation and outcomes that are available in the prison system. But we know from our participants that, um, you know, the prison offers certificates in things like hospitality, kitchen operations, um, horticulture, cleaning, um, construction, that kind of thing. But most in prison education and training is geared towards acquiring trade 
qualifications and there's classroom delivery and then there's some sort of on-the-job training in prison industries. Um, So that's all sort of delivered in person and it's delivered really inconsistently across the prison system as well. So you might be able to access one course with a TAFE provider in one prison, but then when when you get moved, which happens all the time in the Victorian prison system, you know, that course is not available in in another system and you can't complete it. Um, So there have been changes to this. Like there is definitely, I will say there is definitely recognition in the Department of Justice and in Corrections Victoria that education and training is really, really key. Um, And there have been, um, there's a vocational education and training center of excellence model, which is um, opened in a few of the prisons. And we see really, really good outcomes from that. So there are changes, um, but it's not enough. And the absence of online learning as an option um, really holds people back as well. So, yeah, we're, we're really hoping that we can push for access to online education and training um, as well. But um, people who are in prison are expected to work as well. That's the other sort of aspect of it. Um, all sentenced people under the age of 65 are expected to work in the prison unless they're medically unfit to do so. Um, and... Um, in order to earn the money that they need to make phone calls, um, buy things, you know, at the canteen and that kind of thing, um, they they do work. They're engaged in prison industry usually. Um, so yes, that's a big that's a big topic: prison industry and education and training. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Just to, uh, the reason why I ask is that I'm sure you've seen that great documentary. Um, I think it's called The Thirteenth. Uh, yeah. is, is it called the 13th? Just the 13th, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, it's called the 13th, yeah. Uh, about the American, well, it's not just about the American justice system, but it sort of yeah. takes this sort of thesis of the American criminal system replaced slavery, um, yeah. essentially. Uh, that the majority of people in the American prison system are African-American and once, uh, I'm telling this to the viewers out there, you really should, I've probably mentioned on the show before, it's actually really worthwhile watching that yeah. after the 13th Amendment was introduced and the abolition of slavery, then what was set up was basically a, a prison system that essentially continued to run as a profitable business that was now full of African-Americans and working in there and doing work yeah. for free. So instead yeah. of being the fields of Mississippi, they're now in prisons across the country. Um, where do you, and so you watch that in horror going, oh, that's outrageous. That shouldn't happen, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Yet that happens here in Australia as well. Yeah. Um, wh- what's your take on that? Um, it's, a diffic- it's a difficult topic because we know that people who, okay, on the one hand, people who are in prison do want to work. They want to prepare themselves for reintegrating into, into employment after they are released from prison. And um, they want to use the opportunity to upskill and, you know, learn about new industries and all that kind of thing. So the opportunity to work for a proper living, I believe, absolutely should be available in the prison system. The problem is, um, like, how we do it. So first of all, it's paid an absolute pittance. So um, depending on your sort of classification within prison industry, you're paid between $3.95 and $8.95 per day. Um, most people are on about $6.50 per day. So, you know, that is um, 
like I think that that's horrifying you know that is so little money I I mentioned before that a a 12 minute phone call which is the maximum that you're allowed costs 7.95 so a mother that wants to call her kids every day every day she has to spend more than she earned that day just to make that 12 minute phone call right so six dollars fifty per weekday for a full work day is um is is simply unacceptable and it's not um you know, Australia, we really pride ourselves on, I think, our, our workplace laws and our workplace rights and um, the fact that people in prison are working um, not only for so little money, but also without any of the workplace protections that we're used to in the community. None of those apply within prison. There's no union within the prison. Um, there's no, yeah, there's no labour protection within the prison at all. So, um, I think that's you know a, a massive injustice that that should be um, should be corrected within the prison industry itself. There's two types of employment within the prison system. So you've got what's known as service industries and what's known as commercial industries. So service industry means maintaining the prison itself, keeping the prison, keeping the day to day operation of the prison going. So people who are employed in service industries, they work in the prison kitchen, they work in the prison laundry. They clean the prison, they do gardening, they do general maintenance. And approximately like 60% of people employed in prison are employed just to keep the prison going. But then there's about 35% that are employed in commercial industries. And workers in commercial industries provide goods and services for private companies that operate outside the prison. So they fabricate metal, for example, they manufacture timber products, they work in agriculture, they pack coffee, um, all of Qantas's plastic headsets that you get when you sit on a on a Qantas flight, those are all manufactured in the Victorian prison system. Every single Victorian number plate, the number plate on your car right now is manufactured in the Victorian prison system. So um, there are private companies who are using prison labor to make more of a profit for themselves. Um, And I think that's really, really problematic. That's an an importation of an American model that I don't think has any place um, in the Australian prison system. I think that if private employers want to, as the, you know, the way they phrase it is that they're offering opportunities within the prison system, you know, to upskill and prepare for post-release employment, that kind of thing. But the problem is that they offer no support to do that. And then actually on the other side of the gate, they don't employ anyone with a criminal record. So what you've got is a situation where people are, are functionally employed by that company in the prison system for six fifty a day. And then when they're released and they apply for the exact same job on the outside, they can't get it because they have a criminal record. So I don't think that prison, I don't think that private companies should be allowed to use prison labor just to maximize their profits. Um, I think if they're going to be in there, we need to be imposing strict obligations on them to actually provide post-release employment opportunities um, as well. And we should be um, mandating that they pay, you know, a, a decent wage for the work that's done in the prison system and not um, not the, the measly wages that are currently paid. Um, so, yeah, lots of reform in that space needed as well. Um, he, he, you, uh, you had us at Qantas. <laughs> so you yeah. said Qantas, everyone was like, oh, just typical. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, I mean, I'm able to say Qantas because um, – uh, 
you know, women come out of prison and, and tell us about it. But actually, there is no information publicly available as to which companies are in the prison system. That information is held commercial in confidence. So unless someone tells us, you know, directly or unless it's found out, you know, through investigative journalism, we don't know which companies are using prison labour. We only know about the number plate thing because the former corrections minister, you know, tweeted about it as like a point of pride, you know, but um, but we didn't know that beforehand. Um, so, yeah, that it's it's not it's the secrecy and the lack of transparency, you know, around these kind of um, commercial arrangements that is that is also cause for concern. Uh, last a uh, couple of questions. Uh, first of all, there's a obviously we've just had a, a state election last mm-hmm. year. Uh, Labor was returned with a whopping majority. Uh, yeah. Do we have a new corrections minister off the top of my head? Is it Nat? We do. Hutchins? Uh, it's not Natalie Hutchins anymore. So our new corrections minister is um, Enver Erdogan. So uh, obviously need to build a relationship with uh, the new minister, uh, plenty yeah. of work to be done there. I know lots of people that yeah. listen to this show um, will either know the minister, uh, maybe the minister may even listen to this podcast, who knows. Yeah. Uh, if you're in the next 12 months, what's the focus uh, for you guys in terms of what kind of uh, uh, strategic goals are you working towards? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um yeah, the, you know, we've we've always had good relationships with successive ministerial offices. Um, uh, correct, successive corrections ministers have been, you know, very open to to hearing from us. And um, the new minister is is no different. His office has been very open to, um, you know, to meeting with us and to working with us. You know, we're we're an important sort of um, service provider within the existing corrections system. So um, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of our strategic priorities over the next 12 months, well, what we really have is um, like a three-year policy and advocacy plan, um, which if you're interested, you can find on our website. Um, and that has 12, um, I guess, pillars, like 12 policy priorities that um, we are really um, hoping to push the new state and federal governments in, in some spaces to um, to move towards adopting. Um, a big sort of area for us, as, as I've talked about, um, uh, you know, today is around moving away from prison and towards those alternative responses to crime. Um, another big thing for us is just reducing the number of people incarcerated in Victoria. And um, a big part of that is um, bail reform. So, um, that's really kind of um, being hotly talked about in the media this week because of the findings from the coronial inquest. Um, we have some of the most punitive bail laws in the country in Victoria, and um, that is resulting in um, the disproportionate incarceration of women and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples for low-level offending that it's likely that in the previous system they wouldn't have ever been incarcerated for. Um, more than half of the women who are incarcerated in Victoria today have not been sentenced to time in prison. They're there on remand. Um, so, you know, that's absolutely huge. And, you know, none of those women should be there. So that's really what when we're talking about reducing the number of people who are incarcerated. We're talking about repealing those bail laws and raising the age of criminal responsibility so that we don't have any children incarcerated in Victoria anymore as well. Um we um, 
are really focused on healthcare provision in prison this year. Um, I've, I've, I've mentioned it um, so far today, but we are hoping to be talking to the federal government about Medicare access in prisons, and we're hoping to continue to be talking to the state government about the Department of Health taking over healthcare provision um, in the prison system. We're also really focused on um, the families and children of people who are in prison. So there was a big parliamentary inquiry last year into children affected by parental incarceration. Um, we did a lot of work with, with um, the, the parliamentary committee to, um, to respond to that inquiry and to develop a set of recommendations, which includes formal recognition for, for families and children and formal you know, service provision for them, which I mentioned earlier. Um, the government is yet to respond to that inquiry or to the big inquiry into Victoria's criminal justice system. Um, the deadline for both of those responses has passed. So we're going to be asking the government to um, yeah, get some responses to those out and yeah, continuing to advocate on our family work. Um, we are, because we've got our sort of employment and housing programs um, developing and launching, we're really, um, really keen to continue to push in employment and housing, in the employment and housing space, um, remove, you know, remove some of the stigma for people who are seeking employment post-release by, um, you know, we believe that the Equal Opportunity Act should be remended, amended so that discrimination on the basis of an irrelevant criminal conviction becomes, um, you know, that that becomes a protected characteristic. Um, yeah, there are a lot of kind of small, different legislative and policy changes that can make a big difference. Um, but if you go to vacro.org.au slash policy, you can see all of our um, all of our policy priorities for the upcoming government and, and what we'll be um, advocating on, not just to the government, but, you know, to the public as well, because that's an important part of this work, too. Um, do you is it, do you want to give us you've obviously given the that part of the organizational plug can people donate or can people do you seek support from the public in terms of the work that you're doing is there do you want to give that a bit of a plug as well while you're at it sure <laughs> um yeah absolutely um we are always accepting donations again you can find that on our website um i think if you just go to the home page there's really clear sort of in there's a there's a donate button um right at the top there's also a get involved button right at the top if there are you know, other ways, if, if you're interested in, you know, working for us or um, contributing to the work that we do, there's also um, ways that you can reach out to us. But I think like the best way that your listeners or that average Victorians can um, can help is by having these conversations and, you know, finding out the um, as much information as possible about the justice system and about the problems with the justice system and, you um, yeah, I think like on the pro, on the progressive side of politics, we need to be having like more generalized and more informed discussions about um, what we want to change about the justice system. Um, because, yeah, as I said, it's really the baseline of our society and of how we treat the people that need support in our society. So, yeah, get informed, um, get active. Um, and yeah, absolutely. That donate button is there if um, if you want to support Vacro's work. We'll also put the um, the links to the website in our bio for, t for this week's episode yeah. uh, as well. Um, Great. 
Abigail, it's been a great conversation with you today. It's felt like a deep dive, but I bet you you think we've you've just skimmed across the surface of all of the work and all of the challenges that you guys are undertaking. Um, I mean, I think we've covered a lot. Like, I which which is great. You know, I, I think it's so important to to talk about these things, and I think there are some issues that we've sort of gone, um, yeah, quite into depth in. So yeah, I'm glad to have covered um, what we've covered. Um, it is it is a big issue, but it's also sort of um, not that complicated an issue, really, when you sort of drill down into it, like people um, commit crimes because they need support in other areas of that li- of their lives. And if we want to have a safer and stronger community in Victoria, then we need to invest in offering that support instead of having this knee-jerk, tough-on-crime reaction that we all know doesn't work. Well, we're a solutions-oriented podcast here at Social Democratic, and you've certainly come up with a whole bunch of solutions that uh, should be uh, considered by the Victorian State Government in the next three years. And we wish you and uh, your team uh, the best of luck uh, with the important work that you're doing in this space. So thanks very much for coming on the show this week. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Hey there, thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events, that will energise the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.